Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. Every week, the three of us call in and record a conversation about the larger scope of design and everything related. Here we go. Hey, gentlemen, how are you this weekend? Fantastic. Oh, I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm resting up after this week. It was a really long week for us. We, uh, we launched that app of ours, and I spent all my time this week emailing, just non, non-stop emailing, and I'm, oh, I'm tired. Looks oh, yeah, good, you want, it looks really good. Uh, WikiWeb. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Thank you, uh, thank you guys for checking it out. No, it's it was it's been a lot of fun to like put it out there and get feedback on it. It's just been so so much emailing, so many emails. Are you just emailing press outlets and Mashable dot com? Well, yeah. Uh, in the beginning of the week, it was a lot of you know contacting people in the media and the press, which is always fun. They're they're the best people. I love dealing with those people. <laughs> uh, but then after we launched, it's been a ton of dealing with uh, like like customers. Actually, a lot of users have emailed us both with like to say nice things about it and also to like offer feedback. Uh, we also had so we had we had a bug that we were unaware of. So it's available you know, all over the world in like forty five different languages. And apparently, in all the languages that aren't English, uh, you can't like open images and like make them bigger. So, huh? as, so as soon as we like launched it and people started buying it. I started getting emails from all over the world and all sorts of broken English and people telling me that we couldn't open images. Uh, oh, which, man. Which was, it was funny because, you know, it's actually really cool to get emails from, like, Asia and you know, South Africa and, you know, Germany of people that can't use your thing that you made. But at the same time, it's a problem i got to deal with. So it's been a lot right. of emailing. But, but no, no, that's, it's, that's it's, interesting. It's so, so rewarding to ship something, right? You know, like, putting something out there and getting feedback on it is, like, the most validating thing it's, it feels so good. That's great. Have you gotten any emails yet in a totally different language that you do not understand and had to run it through Google Translate? I've had a couple of those. Yeah, not, not many. I think most people know that we're, we're English speakers, but uh, yeah, a few that I've had to run through Google Translate. It's, it's amazing how much the internet can allow us to communicate with people that don't speak our language. Like, it's, it's, you can have a pretty functional conversation with somebody that doesn't speak a word of the language you speak. I've done that before. Like, through, I have a little project called Has a Portfolio, where it's just a, it's just a Tumblr theme that turns your Tumblr into a portfolio, and... I get a lot of support emails for that, and a lot of them are just in a totally different language, <laughs> which I don't know if, if it's coming from somebody who's unaware that I speak English, or it's just like, he'll probably figure it out, and sure enough, I tend to be able to figure it out. I'd say we get to the top of the dock. Hey, we got a lot to talk about this week. Let's, uh, let's dive in. So, McDonald's seems to be going through some new brand positioning, at least McDonald's Canada. Um, they started this new YouTube channel, but they've had a collection of these videos where they're basically taking questions from people that, you know, normally wouldn't be answered, and they actually answer them. Two that really stand out, one, you know, what's in the special sauce, and two, um, how on earth do they get these images that they have, like in commercials and, and in posters and everything, to look as awesome as they are, because they don't really look like that in real life. And just them, like, showing the mystery of everything is... A lot different from what McDonald's used to be. Right. And actually, I, I was still under the impression that the sauce was a secret. But at the very beginning of the video, they're like, this has been online for a while. It's yeah. funny how uh, how that myth can continue. Whereas if somebody had just Googled it for one second, they would be like, ah, secret sauce. Here's how you make it. Not a problem. Yeah. And actually, what, what that guy said was really interesting to me. The videos were, I mean, I, I like them. I, I think it's interesting that they're, you know, communicating directly with their customers and taking questions and answering them. 
Um, but most of the videos that I watched have, like, anger in them that, like, people would ask these questions of them. Like, the one with the secret sauce. See, in the beginning, he's like, well, you know, if you just Googled it, you could find it in, like, two <laughs> seconds. He's like, but let me show you anyway. I would be angry, too, though. Like, every single question that they start with is clearly written in an angry tone. If it were if it were being written out, it'd be, like, the anger of you writing a note to put on someone's car that smashed yeah. into yours. Yeah, for Like, sure. they're clearly, what the fuck is in the special sauce? So they are, they do have to come from a defensive position. Or it's like, aren't your chicken nuggets full of bones and chemicals? (laughs) Yeah, right. There's no way to say that in a happy way. And then the the funniest one to me was that one guy emailed and it was like, you know, isn't 100% beef just the name of the company you get your beef from and it's not 100%? And some guy was like, no, really it's 100% beef. And then he went physically to a, like, uh, a corporate trademark registry office, had some, like, little nerd search on a computer and figure out if there was a company called 100% Beef, which there's not. And then mm-hmm. he had this guy print it out and read it out loud on camera. And then he put it in an envelope and mailed it to the guy that asked the question. <laughs> this printout, it says, no results found for 100% beef. It's like how a 13-year-old girl would get back at her friend that, like, double-crossed her. Didn't leave some wow. sassy note in her locker. I don't know. <laughs> There's just some, some weird, like, vitriol in these videos to me. It's, it's, you can tell that McDonald's is kind of pissed off they have to answer these questions. I'm sure yeah. it's not the first time they've answered that question. Yeah, yeah no, and yeah. that's the other thing. It's like all the questions they're answering seem to me like some of the really easy ones to answer, like the, the lowball obvious ones, which I guess, you know, we can't expect McDonald's to answer really challenging questions that they don't have great answers for. But yeah. no, like, like, yeah. I wasn't, like, surprised by any of the answers. Like, I, I knew that's, that's where all these videos were going to be going. But it does feel a little bit weird, though, that because they've been really silent about that sort of stuff. And, you know, I one point we're really reluctant to put health information on all their stuff where out of nowhere they're just like oh yeah we're just gonna tell you how we do everything i think that's just been a, a global push though like everybody has to be as transparent as possible or else we're not gonna buy your mcdonald's anymore I, but i do think there's a lot of i don't know once you get into legal stuff about being forced to put nutritional information on and you have to make it this large and it has to be larger on the front of the package or it has to be big on the menu Mm-hmm. At a certain point, if you're not willing to put the nutritional information or you don't want to, there's a reason. You can just you can just tell that it's bad for you because you walked in and it's not available. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. So do you guys think – I have a question for you. Do you think that the fact that people have all these questions and that all the questions are things we could have probably guessed if we had sat down and figured out what questions people had is evidence that – McDonald's brand is already, you know, not very well represented, that people have all these thoughts about it, or do you think it's unavoidable for a company this large? I think it's unavoidable, because yeah. even, I'm sure there are lots of people who already know the answer and want to ask anyway. I'd be, I'm sure they have a ton of questions where they're like, I know where this is going to go because I want to have to answer this. I, I don't, th- I think most of the questions probably aren't even sincere. So maybe they've done a fine job of getting the information out there and people just choose not to listen to it. I, I feel like that's a large part of the problem. Yeah, I wonder about that too, because I do feel like at a certain point when your company's big enough, just the nature of running a company that large there's going to be things that fall through the cracks and people are going to be mad but then i always think of i always think of ikea and how big ikea is and i've never heard anything negative about ikea in my entire life really except for never. the verdana switch that was negative that was hugely negative but that was wait, just in my wait, tech was? nerds the verdana switch I mean, like, you know, human condition, like, our warehouses are terrible, and all the stuff you hear about big companies, oh. about how, like, they're, they shouldn't, and the, all the fast food companies, you hear about all the crap they put in their food, and how people find, like, rats in the burgers, or crap like that. Other companies, like Amazon or Apple, you hear about the conditions in the, wor- in the warehouses, or the factories where the right. stuff is made. But I've never heard a single negative thing about Ikea, except for the fact that the furniture is all crap, and they are bad at choosing fonts. But it seems that they run this, like, giant company without making anybody mad, which is interesting. And it's one of the only big companies I can think of where I've never heard any people, like, complaining about their, you know, business practice. We also remember they're not based in the United States, so who knows what's happening in Sweden. Maybe there are these conversations happening, and we're just not aware of them. Mm-hmm.
Oh, is this, this is actually something I didn't I didn't put this on the top of the doc, but I know I tweeted about it. Um, did you guys see the Full Contact blog post about their change in the vacation policy for their employees? I did not. Yeah. I did not. I did. Yeah. So, so Full Contact is this you know web company. I'm not sure what they do honestly, um, but they're like a web startup, and they have this new policy where not only are they giving their employees two weeks of paid vacation every year, as as most companies do, uh, but they are also going to pay for that vacation. So it's two weeks of paid paid vacation. They're giving every employee seventy five hundred dollars for their vacation every year on the conditions that they take the vacation. They have to go somewhere, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. and they cannot do any work and they can't be plugged in while they're on the vacation. And on those two conditions, they get seventy five hundred dollars on top of their paid you know salary they're getting while they're away just to go on a trip. That's kind so, of amazing. It's it's yeah. really amazing. I, I was thinking about it, and first it seems like you know you wonder if okay that seventy five hundred dollars is just coming out of their salary because you know they have to make the numbers fit in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I imagine all those employees are going to come back from that $7,500 vacation, like thrilled to go back to work for this company. Like they've been completely unplugged for two weeks on vacation on someone else's dime. They're going to come back like super happy and excited to work. I, I feel like, I feel like it might actually be a, a pretty good model. Actually, mm-hmm. this reminds me, do you remember the, the Zappos things that was somewhat similar where if you're hired at Zappos, you can decide to quit and they'll give you a thousand dollars to quit. Oh, uh, there's more that? than that now. Wait, oh, really? Is it? Yeah. yeah, basically they they say like, look, if you're if you're a couple, I can't remember how many months in. If you're a month in or a couple months in, and you decide that this job is not for you, we'll pay you a thousand dollars or however much it is now to quit. Which that's sounds, actually great. That's yeah. Fantastic. It sounds, when you first hear it, it sounds crazy, but then you think about it and go, oh, that's way less money than they would pay for just to just to employ somebody for a longer period of time who's not going to stick around and end up not contributing anything to the company. It's yeah, like I mean, really why a always test want, of always want people that why don't want to here. be there, there. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you, if you don't people don't want to be there, you don't want to keep them there. So like why not give them some money so they can feel like they have some security to go find a better job. That that's really interesting. I like that. Yeah. It's yeah. it really is the opposite of the McDonald's model of just like get somebody in, train them, get them out. Get somebody in, train them, get them out. Well, and what's interesting is I actually had a buddy who went through the interview process there. And it's not just like they hire anybody. I mean, the the interview process and everything was really, really intense. I mean, it was for something that was related to uh, interaction design. And, you know, it, they take you through a tour of, like, you know, the warehouse sort of situation and had a huge, huge emphasis on making them really knowledgeable of their customer service. Mm-hmm. Because they said that... Um, if you're not okay with that or if you're not knowledgeable of it or anything like that, then you're not a good fit. So basically by the time you've gotten to the point of having a job, you've invested too much to take the small amount of money to get out. Is, is Zappos another example of a big company that I've never heard anybody like complain about or say anything bad about the working conditions? I think it actually is. I, I really only heard positive things because they seem to be very good at customer service. They seem to always get high ratings on that. Like They also seem to be good on how they treat their employees. I think mm-hmm. that might be an example. And my favorite, my favorite thing about Zappos is that they have little like stupid videos for like ninety percent of the things they sell. Yeah. Like, those little those little videos are somehow way more informative about like a product than you know a bunch of pictures. It's also interesting that it's an example of a company where it might actually be more important that they treat people the way they treat them as opposed to provide the service that they provide. I feel like there's a big trend now of supporting companies whether you like what they actually provide or not because of of how they run their business. This actually kind of segues nicely into um, something I really want to talk about, uh, which is the fact that Amazon is working towards offering same-day delivery in most major urban areas and populated areas. 
mm-hmm. which which people are predicting, I think accurately so, will completely destroy local retail. And so I was wondering what you guys thought about that, because you know it's this kind of thing where. Amazon has obviously built this very large business and this really intelligent infrastructure that allows them to do things like deliver things the same day in most you know major populated areas. And so in that way, they're like innovating on this infrastructure and doing mm-hmm. new interesting things. But at the same time, they are sort of about to really crush a lot of local economies. So I was wondering how you guys uh, felt about you know, weighing the, the idea of innovation with not destroying something that's been around forever. I'm a little bit torn on it because obviously it's sad to see local businesses get shut down and nobody wants, I mean, not nobody, but a lot of people would be sad to see that change. Um, mm-hmm. But on the, other, on the other side of it, I tend to always be happy to see something change towards a, a more future sustainable model. Like if this is the way things are going to go, then I'm happy to see it start to happen. I just, I guess I just wonder is, is it real? is there something that a, a brick and mortar store can offer that Amazon can't? And if you can't, then why should we be so sad about it? If, if you can't offer anything beyond just delivering you a product, who cares, right? If, if you're not providing customer support or like a really exciting experience for somebody to be a part of, then who cares? There are certain things I think that really benefit from being able to interact with them in person, you know, like trying on clothes or or trying a new computer or something like that. Like there's totally benefits to that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, does that person say, okay, I'll go and buy this now or be like, oh, let's see if it's cheaper on Amazon. At this point, it may not be cheaper, but it doesn't matter because one of the big things about them changing their, the reason they're going local is because they're changing their policy towards state taxes. Mm -hmm. Previously, they had not collected any state taxes and then slowly company you know states start changing laws so that they have to like there's a big battle about this in california and it seems like they're now just bending all these state taxes but because they are they can open warehouses in some of these states that are now charging mm-hmm. so the the previous argument from brick and mortar stores was that amazon doesn't it's not really fair because amazon doesn't charge you any taxes and we are forced to by the state but now they they may have to compete on a similar price point it's just the same day delivery thing might knock them out anywhere. Yeah, I think there's also the issue of, you know, Amazon being as huge as it is, is able to get access to a lot of these goods at much lower prices because they're buying in huge bulk. Uh, so in a lot of ways, I think just because just of the sheer size of Amazon, it'd be near impossible for a brick and mortar, you know, mom, pa shop to compete on price. Right. Um, and I, I do think that there is a like sense of community and a pride in buying something, you know, from your own local area that you know Amazon obviously can't compete with, but I I, I think in general people are just going to end up buying what's cheaper and what's more convenient. Um, and, and you mentioned I know Matt that you said uh, you love to see things change in a way that is more sustainable for the future and you know the way things are going to end up being. Um, and I wonder if if you think that the current model of like buy stuff at stores in your town is like unsustainable, or if you just think that it's just not as convenient as it's going to be in the future. Yeah, that's hard for me to say. I mean, here's the thing about the the Amazon move is like. I don't really see it as any different than Walmart, you know? It's just mm-hmm. the same – it's just a place you're not going to visit. They're just going to deliver to you. So in that sense, I don't see it as being a whole lot different. Um, but no, I don't think that local business is unsustainable. I'm just saying that if, if this is the if this is the tide and this is the where it's going to go inevitably, then I tend to not be sad about, you know, the flipping of the switch. Yeah, and I do think that it's, it's actually – the Walmart thing is an interesting comparison because uh, it is similar in a lot of ways. But I do think that Walmart is actually – a lot worse, mostly because you know, they they only they not only come in and offer you know goods at prices that local shops can't compete with, but then they also hire every single person in a lot of these small towns that you know was put out of a job by the fact that they came in there, 
And then all of a sudden Walmart, you know, also employs all these people and can afford to, you know, pay them unfair wages and offer them unfair working conditions on the grounds that they can't, there's nowhere else to work. Um, so in that way, I think that, you know, Walmart sort of takes over these towns where Amazon is going to be the kind of situation where people are just not going to stop buying stuff at local stores and then people are going to be out of jobs. And what I'm interested in is what people do with that time that they now have. And just saying they have time is, you know, uh, turning a blind eye to the economic ramifications of not having a business anymore. There's an opportunity, I think, for all these people that may be put out of business by Amazon to do something interesting, which I'm kind of excited by at the same time I'm you know sad that there's going to be this incredible change for all these people's lives I also do wonder about this kind of race to the bottom where everything is so cheap that everybody loses their job like I mean I don't know maybe we'll just have to take a step back and and move towards more quality items in local locations I mean obviously I'm not the first to say this and there have been a lot of people pushing for this kind of thing but it is it is odd that Everything in the world is cheaper, but nobody has a job. Like, surely that, that, I, maybe I'm saying, maybe I'm going back on what I was saying originally and saying that's totally unsustainable and we'll all realize that we have to find some sort of happy medium because we can't all have the cheapest possible item in the world, but not be able to afford our rent. Well, yeah, and I, th- I think there's going to be this bigger move towards incentives in like brick and mortar sort of situations. Like, if you go over to France, there's this big thing where uh, incentives are a part of the purchasing process. Like I've actually, when I was working at an Apple store years ago, I actually had French folks come in and be like, well, I'm thinking about buying this thing, but do you have anything else that would, you know, like entice me to want to buy this? And it's not like they were being a jerk. It was just customary for them. But like what kind of things would, would, uh, be an incentive to buy in a French store? Well, it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you're looking towards a a bigger purchase, like how we would buy a car or something like that, we often go in and, and haggle the price. It's right. kind of like that, but even in smaller situations, like if you're going to go buy a laptop, you know, maybe like a, a laptop sleeve or, or anything like that, just kind of like thrown on top, just say, like, oh, yeah, okay, here you go. Here's something else. You know, there, there's that sort of thing. I even wonder, maybe it fits more focusing even on the experience in the store. This is you know, kind of related, kind of not, but there's a place up in New York and LA called the blind barber. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's really like an upscale sort of barber shop. And, you know, like you go in and you pay for your cut or your shave or whatever, but you also get, you know, the complimentary cocktail while you're there. And that's the sort of like the higher end sort of thing to make you feel like you're actually appreciated for coming in the store and giving them money for something. I bet it will come down to customer service. Like if you are going to, let's say we were talking about the laptop thing, I would say there's probably more incentive to buy the laptop if they're, if you can always bring it back and they're going to help you fix it as opposed mm-hmm. to getting the laptop sleeve. I think the, the whole reason to buy in a store would be to be, be able to talk to a person who knows what they're doing who can provide some sort of service to you that you wouldn't otherwise get online and that you feel safe about making this purchase. Um, It's like the difference between walking into a Home Depot and a local hardware store where you can ask the local hardware store guy what kind of screw you'd need to do this, and he knows because he actually knows how to build something as opposed to somebody who's hired at a Home Depot and can't really tell you anything about whatever you want to build. True story. I was at a Home Depot once, uh, and I asked somebody for a couple yards of some material, uh, and the person asked me how many feet that was. (laughs) oh my god and i said a yard has three feet in it what you're talking about dan is interesting to me and it touches on something i've been thinking a lot about lately which is that i feel like a lot of people in our generation are more likely to back something on kickstarter before they are to like buy like i feel like if a lot of these local stores like mom pa shops were to make like a touchy-feely video with an indie song in the background show telling the story of their business 
and ask for people just to give them money on Kickstarter, they'd be more likely to get money there than for people to actually show up and like buy a thing at that store. Like I think it's a disconnect. Like a lot of people don't understand that buying something at a local establishment is just as much backing it as you know backing it on Kickstarter. Isn't that kind of what McDonald's was doing? Kind of going back originally to what we were talking about um, at the beginning was that like even with the chef video, the guy took off the fancy chef thing. That was also really interesting. Yeah, yeah, he's like in his home kitchen, and it is there this huge move to make people feel like you're local and that it's you're more of a mom and pop than you are anything else. It was awesome. He was like, he was like, I'm gonna take off my official McDonald's <laughs> chef's coat now. He was like so mechanical about it. He was yeah. like, look, look, I'm being human. See me empathizing yeah. with you. Here <laughs> no, I no, go. You, you know that would have gone a lot smoother if he went. Ladies, <laughs> no, that it does speak volumes about our kind of desperation for some sort of human contact. I think is that we're we're just looking for to be able to interact with other people in whatever we do. And I think you're right, Andy, that if you can make an indie video with a song playing in the background that tells a nice little story, you're doing so much better than if you are just explaining the nuts and bolts of buying a thing at at your local store. Is the same thing as kickstarting a project, or at least you're lending a similar kind of support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the storytelling is a really, really powerful narrative device, and it can affect people's perceptions of a business. And I think that that's one of the reasons I've seen, you know, we've seen projects get funded on Kickstarter that are just like, why did you give this person your money? Like, seriously, look what they're going to do with it. It's, it's because people want to be involved in that story. I, I wish we could make it more obvious to people that, you know, buying some you know nuts and bolts at your local hardware store is going to help you support that story of that family's business just as much as anything else is. But there is that disconnect, though, between people. When people go to buy something, it's very much an economic decision. They're like, I have to buy some nuts and bolts. Where are the cheapest nuts and bolts? How can I get them here fastest? And when people go to back something, it's very much an emotional sort of storytelling decision where they're like, oh, I want to be involved in this. I want to you know, support this idea and this concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I wish that more people connected spending their hard-earned money with supporting things. But then that's really what... That's what capitalism is. The things you give your money to are the things that you say you want to have continue to exist and to support. Actually, as you continue to talk about this, it kind of creates this divide in my brain between the kind of creative and the functional. It makes me think that we could go like full Kickstarter model in the creative world and then go full functional bottom of the barrel prices, whatever you need to do to get a cheap screw. Like those mm-hmm. are the those are the two ends of the spectrum, and there will only be Home Depot, and then there will only be Indiegogo, um, and anything else in between is like either there's not enough connection to be made to this, or it's too expensive. I wonder if people too will get uh, sort of immune and jaded to these sort of local like touching stories about supporting. Because in a lot of oh, ways, yeah. you know, for the past decade, it's been very much uh, a corporate game. We've watched giant companies like Amazon and Zappos and all these things, you know, grow out of the ashes, but then. There's this big pushback now for people that are really interested in supporting local initiatives, uh, and I wonder if people are going to eventually get tired of that and no longer be affected by the by the video with the finger style guitar in the background. <laughs> I'm sure the style will change, and we'll we'll find that there are cues that uh, set off our bullshit alert. But yeah. um, I th- <laughs> but I do think the idea of trying to connect with somebody and trying to connect with a story is always going to be powerful, and I, I I like the trend. Like I'm sure there are a lot of people tugging on heartstrings and and not doing anything of value. But if we can, if our filter gets better and we can really just try to support the things that we love, I, I love that model. I don't see any yeah, no, problem too. with it at all. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, maybe Amazon, you know, coming in and crushing all of these local economies, uh, will actually allow 
more space for things like these Kickstarter projects and these local initiatives to to exist. They could, could maybe be like, like you mentioned, Matt. It could be like the two extremes can coexist as long as there's nothing in between. I, I think it also has to do with the fact that there's so many things that we like to own. I'm going to do air quotes as I say own. Um, because we realize they're just like they're bits and bytes and they don't have any physical manifestation. And so how do you really assign value to it? I'm sure we all own thousand times more content than our parents did or whoever, you know, oh, yeah. whoever came before us did. And if you had to put a monetary value on that previously, you could do it. But at this point, we know the monetary value is really just a lie. Like why is that song 99 cents and why is something at nine ninety nine? It's like the free market has decided it could be that way, but... It, we also know we can kind of steal whatever we want with almost mm-hmm. no consequence. So nothing has any value at all. And goddamn, we got to find something that means something because otherwise, nothing in my world has any meaning. Not to be so dark about it, but <laughs> why does why does owning the album or why does owning the piece of IKEA furniture? What what is the difference and why do they have any value besides being able to hold up your books? Which oh shit, those don't even have value anymore. Yeah, and then this idea of like the changing perceptions of value of something. It's been really hitting home for me. With the, we launched this app last week, and we were charging four ninety nine for it, uh, and it is amazing to me, just amazing to see how many people think that's a ridiculously high price, uh, or come back and say that it's you know not even say it's their opinion that it's too expensive, but that it's definitely overpriced for what it is and all this sort of stuff. It's just crazy to think that we worked for like nine months, like thousands and thousands of hours on this thing, and we're asking for like as much as a cup of coffee for it. Right. And tons of people's reactions are, wait, I can get. Amazing apps for free and really amazing apps for one dollar. Why does this app cost five dollars? And it's in this like relative, crazy like app economics sort of system where people are like people write people write articles like five dollars is really steep. Maybe if it was two dollars, it would make sense. And it's like, is that three dollars really gonna change whether you're gonna buy it or not? Like, it's just crazy to think about how, yeah. how the how the value of a dollar has changed to so many people with the introduction of the app store. Well, yeah, especially for like a $200 or more phone. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's all sorts of crazy metrics you can look at it in, but it's just crazy to think that no longer is, you know, nine months and thousands of hours worth of our work worth $4, $5 to some person because of just how saturated the market is with apps that have taken twice as long and are totally free. I guess the, I know I don't mean to rehash the whole conversation we had about the oatmeal comic and the cup of coffee being the, this, you know, being way more than the price of an app. I wonder, too, if it has something to do with the fact that you you see the $5 and then you just do the multiplication in your head of, like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to get this many apps and I want to buy this many songs and this is going to stack up really quickly. Like, I, I do have that worry, too, that, like, you're buying this thing that you don't really know if it's going to work well or not. You can read the ratings, but you're not really sure if you're going to be happy with it. I don't really know much, of course, about refunds and then you're going to think about all these other things you have to buy in the future and ultimately this is a device you might ditch in the future and there might be a new thing and you've just put all this money into i don't know i i, I go very far down the road with it and realize i'm putting all this money under this 200 dollars phone that i'm tacking all this extra stuff onto and god who knows if it's going to be an iphone in the future that's really interesting i had never actually thought about that sort of aspect of it like how many how much people are going to be attached to their iphones because of how much they've invested in the apps on it yeah, like, that's going to be a huge sticky factor when it comes to when the next thing does come down the road, and you know people are trying to pull customers away from Apple. They're going to have to make a value proposition for all of the money people have invested in for software for their phone. Right, because it even never like, occurred to me, honestly. I mean, I guess that's why we can always feel good about. I don't know. I have a ton of books on my shelf, and I know I just said they're valueless, but they are a thing that I can keep, and they are a thing that I can look to, and they will always function. 
with an app, it's very possible that I can buy this app and two years from now, it's not going to do anything for me. It won't even work. Like the software could upgrade, the company could change. Who knows? I mean, I, I know we all feel like Apple's a stable thing and everybody's going to be on it forever, but we don't know. I'm, I'm sure people thought that about Windows a little while ago, and now we're not really sure if people are going to be using Windows on platforms in a couple of years. And it is a little bit scary to invest that much money in a platform that you don't really have control over. If you're interested in supporting the On The Grid podcast, we have an interesting sponsorship model available. You can email us with your website, mobile application, maybe a logo or a poster, some sort of design work, and we will critique it on air, uh, both good and bad, which provides twofold value for you. One, you get some critical feedback on your thing to make it better. And two, you get some uh, ears that get to hear about your uh, your product. And we're going to try to be as honest as possible. So we're not going to hold back, but we're at least going to point some people into your website, to your app, whatever you want us to critique. And hopefully it's a work in progress so we have something to actually discuss. And it's not going to be something where we say, oh, you should use this blue or this texture or anything like that. But really just give it an honest critique to say, this is what our thoughts are. Maybe this could help you out. Maybe this will guide you towards a final solution. You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a call if you want to provide a short little description and some context. Uh, our number is 973-ON-GRID-2, which is 973-664-7432. And if you mail us, we'll send you rates and we'll tell you what we need from you. An image, just a little bit of context so we know what we're talking about. So you guys may have noticed uh, that Dalton Caldwell, um, he announced a, a pretty big, pretty audacious move on his part. Um, he's got a company called App.net, which honestly, I'm not even exactly sure what the company does now. Something with mobile app marketing and trying to get more downloads and more users and more numbers, whatever. Um, but he's sort of changing the shift of his entire business based on this really positive feedback he got from a blog post here a couple weeks ago. Um, and the post was basically about what he wished Twitter could have been if they had not gone down the sort of ad-supported uh, route. And he mentions how he had been aware of Twitter since the very early days, and um, when they started getting some traction, there was a divide in, in, in inside of Twitter of some people that wanted to, you know, go the ad-supported route and continue to offer the service for free um, and try and, you know, subsidize the costs and make up the cost with, with advertising. And then some people that wanted to turn Twitter into a, like, big open API sort of pipeline for live updates from users and companies and then whatever. And the ad people obviously ended up winning at Twitter, and this made him sad. He put a post up about it. And a lot of people apparently responded to this post, so much so that he uh, is launching a sort of Kickstarter-esque campaign to turn his business, app.net, into this thing he described, which is this big sort of open pipeline API uh, and it, the way he set it up is he wants to get at least uh, half a million dollars in the next 30 days, which will not only guarantee he has some money to work with to sustain this business, but more importantly will guarantee that you know 10,000-some people are invested enough in this idea to give their money to it, which, as anybody has ever tried to start any sort of service or product, uh, having 10,000 invested users from day one would be huge. So uh, I wanted to know what your guys' opinion and the thoughts were about the sort of video, the Kickstarter campaign, and the whole idea. I want to see where you guys are at with this. I, okay, so the, the, the first point of like just the business model, I think it's hard not to love the idea of the business model because it's, it's hopefully about as honest as you can get to say, I built this product, 
I want it to be supported by users and I want it to be for users. I don't want it to be for advertisers. And I think everyone can agree that they prefer that. Obviously, in practice, people get upset when things aren't free and you know ads are a pain in the butt and they'll use ad blocker and that's a bit skeezy. But I think the, the model is great. The problem I'm having with it is I don't quite understand what everybody's paying for. I don't, I don't know that he did a great job of explaining what the company does. If I understand it, it gives you statistics for your applications and it provides you with a landing page that can point people towards the correct mobile software. Does that sound correct or is yeah. everybody a little bit confused about I what think it does? That, I think that a lot of people had that same feedback where they don't, they don't get it. Um, and not just people – part of it is he really wanted this to appeal to, like, hackers and developers. And he was saying that uh, – you know, there's a quote from Paul Graham about how if someone could get, you know, the top tier of, like, hackers and software developers invested in a search engine or something that was a sort of competitor to one of these big companies, that that would be a huge, you know, huge asset in developing a company that could compete with someone like Google or, you know, one of these huge companies. So I, I think that he, he was trying to appeal largely to this hacker community. And from looking at the comments on Hacker News, which is Paul Graham's, you know, Y Combinator's sort of news site, uh, it seems that he did, he missed the boat there in, in some ways. He also definitely missed the boat with, like, the average, like, Joe Schmo person, uh, who I think doesn't really grasp exactly what he's talking about. And so, it, to me, it seems like he's trying to... I, I, I did donate to the project, I should say, in full transparency. I, I, I gave him 50 bucks at the, like, user level, largely because if this does end up working, I definitely want to be in on the ground floor. Um, right. That, that's a really so. If it doesn't end up working, then it's you know fifty bucks, whatever. I, I think what he's what I hope what I hope he's trying to build is what Twitter allows us, the way Twitter allows us to connect to each other and to brands and to organizations. That sort of connection, really direct connection between a consumer and, and a brand, or between two people that don't know each other or that do know each other, and take that sort of interaction and blow it out into something that is a system instead of a a collab, a like siloed singular product and with that system you can then capitalize off of those connections and build new and interesting tools that uh, are facilitated by those interactions that is probably even a much worse job than he did at explaining it but i think of all the cool things that have been done with the twitter api that were then eventually shut down because twitter doesn't like people using their api for interesting stuff or to compete with them um and how how much better all of the other like third-party twitter applications were before they got rid of the push support basically for for new content and I, th- I feel like Twitter is such a great, amazing thing that I love immensely, but I do agree that their business is being run in the wrong way. And so if this can be all the things I love about Twitter without all of that you know, business bullshit that I think is really throttling Twitter, then I think it could be great. I think, I think the thing is I want this to succeed, but I also want this model applied to a company that I really think is doing something great and transparent and hopefully shifting the the paradigm of what the internet's becoming like if if open id had done this and open idea id were executed better and maybe a bit more sustainable then i i would be behind this 100 percent, and i would want something like that to take off i just because i'm not fully understanding what the the value of this company is it's hard for me to say this is something i really want to back but i agree that it would be maybe maybe i'll just do it to be part of the ground floor in case it does take off and at the very least i reserve my own name yeah, yeah exactly I, I, I hate the danger of that though because then you kind of invest money in something that you're not really knowledgeable of like what the benefit for you is going to be at the end and for me it feels a lot like you know back in 2007 when 
you know, everybody was looking for beta invites for all sorts of different startups where, right. you know, you log in and it turns into pounce and you're like there for five minutes ago. Oh, well, this doesn't really cater to me. Bye. I was, you know, a benefactor of that thing, actually. Like I had a, I had a little startup, uh, God, what was it like seven years ago or so? And mm-hmm. just, just by introducing it with beta invites, like would get on every single uh, social news site. Everybody wanted to be a member, like didn't care what it was as long as it was beta invites and people would hop on in. And I guess this could be, this could be that exactly except with money. But then again, like it is, nobody's spending any money if he doesn't succeed in, in the 500,000 or what is it? Half a million um, goal. So at least mm-hmm. you're not going to lose your money. And then if it does get funded, at least it's not vaporware. I mean, it will at least exist. I know that That's was a lot true. of things with the, the beta invites is that some of these companies never even came to fruition. They just yeah. kind of stayed in that perpetual beta. Plus, I, I can say from experience that the beta invite thing, people that throw their email address in a box like that have such so little dedication and actual interest in the idea in many instances. We, we had a beta list for one of our things you know, way back, and I think that the conversion rate of people, once we actually sent them an invite to the thing that would sign up and you know start using it, was something like 4 or 5% of people that signed up for that list would actually get invested in it. And I like to think that if you've given you know Dalton 50 bucks, you're a hell of a lot more likely to actually use the thing once it exists. So I think there's a, there's a big difference there in that the, the investment is much greater from somebody that's given money. Right. It actually it reminds me of the way people treat gym memberships or something where it's like, look, if I at least pay this certain amount of money for, per month, I'm going to force myself to go just so I don't lose on my investment. Like at least he has that, that I'm not going to lose my investment of $50. I'm at least going to try to make this work. Yeah. Have you ever seen one of those gym membership models that they uh, take some money off of your monthly charge every time you show up? So you pay some like absurd, absurdly high gym rate. And then if you show up every single day by the end of the month, it only costs you like 10 bucks. But if you don't show up at all, it costs you like two hundred bucks or something. Oh, wow. I have not seen that. I've seen the, awesome. the the New Year's introduction rate where everybody signs up for their uh, New Year's resolution, and then the price goes up, and they never end up going. Yeah, but exactly. I guess this is, that's actually really interesting. That's yeah, a, some, uh, some of those backwards models are really really interesting. Uh, I know that I've, I've heard too about uh, some doctors in parts of China that uh, where you only pay the doctor if you're well. And, and you go to them, and if you're well, you pay them. And if you're not well, you don't pay them because it's their job as your doctor to keep you well. So if they've done their job and you're healthy, then you pay them. And if they have not done their job and you're unhealthy, then it, you get free health care until that gets like sorted out. Very interesting awesome. incentive models. In a, especially with the gym membership, they have to, in a sense, like sign up uh, against themselves. Like They're pitting themselves against their own, their own sloth by saying, I'm going to charge myself money if I can't make it out to the gym. So kind of related to that, though, um, especially with the whole Kickstarter idea, was that how Penny Arcade's wanting to go ad-free. And basically the way that they're doing it is saying, if you give us money, we don't have to have ads. And they've already seemed to succeed with it. Yeah, the, so the the project goal was $250,000. They've decided that if you can, if they can raise, raise at least that much, they'll take the big leaderboard ad off the top. Then if they can get to $500,000, they will take all the ads off the site and I, I can't remember how, how deep it goes, but it just keeps going and going from there that if they get to a million, there's some other incentive. And uh, so they've already succeeded with the leaderboard thing. And the, it isn't forever. It is for a year, but that makes a lot of sense. And it's, I mean, it's, it's exactly what app.net is doing is saying, you know, why get paid by advertisers when we get paid by users who actually use the stuff and give them a more valuable product? I, I love the idea of it. I wonder how many companies will try to do this and how, how many it will work for. 
Yeah, yeah, especially when you don't have to do the dreaded subscription model where people would have to pay uh, every month to be able to like consume comics and that sort of thing. Like if they had to pay to see Penny Arcade, but if they could just like donate for something that they're already kind of really passionate about, yeah, then it's a one-time thing. Well, it's not. Well, it is not a one-time thing, right? It's a yearly thing. So oh, yeah. if they can't if they can't kickstart it again next year, I don't know what their plan is. Yeah, that, that's um, but, that's my first question about the sustainability of this. They, I guess you just have to raise that amount of money every single year. So it's like, not wildly different than a subscription model, except that they're saying like if we can break this critical mass, there's a value for everyone. There is the possibility of freeloaders, which is not which there's not with the subscription login model. It sounds a lot like NPR, to be honest. Yeah, actually, it is. It's very much like that. I think it's what Jesse Thorne does too. Like. Everybody who's doing the public radio raise money model, they're saying, hey, look, it doesn't matter if you give or not, but if we can reach this amount of money, then we can continue to exist. Yeah. Yeah, and that's an interesting way to, to go about – it's interesting to see Penny Arcade, which is an existing system, use Kickstarter in this way because I feel like a lot of Kickstarter projects are uh, trying to start out without ads, and the reason they're doing that by trying to get money from people that are going to be their customers or their supporters. But this is already an existing system, and they're like, let's take the ads off, and here's how much money it's going to cost, which is, I think, I think the first time we're going to see this, but I, I think that it could be something that a lot of websites start to do, which I, I am all for abandoning the ad-supported model wherever wherever it exists. It actually reminds me a lot of what has happened in movies and independent movies for a long time, where you're basically like, you're saying, look, this is not an investment for you to make your money back necessarily. Like, you get to be part of a really great thing you get to have your name in the producing credits and you get to be part of a movie isn't that cool this big creative endeavor and it's like whacking that up into just tinier tinier pieces and saying look you get to have your name in the credits if you support this penny arcade thing which is like one of the incentives there's going to be a list of donors that keep the company alive yeah oh my god and and that whole thing where uh if you look there's all the different tiers of what you could pay for Right. And uh, there's one, honestly, like it sounds stupid, but it's like, oh, Tycho will follow you on Twitter or you will get one, you know, ah, retweet from Tycho. If somebody was just a regular bystander going in and seeing this and not knowing what Penny Arcade was, it sounds stupid. But for the rabid fan base that Penny Arcade has, they're like, oh my God, he'll follow me on Twitter? Seriously? I know it's it's clear that they understand their audience and they know what is of value. And I like I do like when when the rewards on Kickstarter are things that don't cost any real money. You know, like obviously it takes some time to go follow somebody on Twitter, but I do hate seeing when if you look at the rewards, you go, oh man, they might actually be spending pretty much all the money to fulfill the rewards for the project, and then what are they left with? Like I do think a lot of people do bad planning and end up saying like we'll give everybody a T-shirt, and then they calculate the amount of the T-shirt, and you're like. Ah, oh, fuck! That is pretty much what we raised. <laughs> it's really interesting to me that they've uh, they've sort of built this value on top of Twitter that Twitter wasn't able to do. Like they've gotten people to give them money so they'll follow them on this system, and Twitter itself is like you know on crutches, barely supported by ads, and yet its users are paying each other to follow each other on the system. Oh yeah, yeah. it's it, it's really interesting to see uh, like a kind of economy develop out of Twitter. Or actually, I guess it's kind of like what what Twitter's been from day one. Is it really has been a super simple platform that users have come up with their own syntax and their own economies and their own way of using the system that Twitter has kind of latched onto and, and ridden, which I think mm. is kind of great. Like, who doesn't love 
the fact that at replies were invented by users. It's also interesting that it, it really was just kind of open place for people to explore, and they did, and they did well, and now Twitter's kind of turning it and saying, oh, well, now we own all this stuff, and we're going to shut everybody out. So, like, I'm looking at the Kickstarter page now for Penny Arcade, and they've sold 25 $500 retweets, and it's totally sold out. Like, it seems like it's one of the things that sold out first. So people are paying, you know, $500 just to get something retweeted by one of these guys, and, you know, Twitter can't seem to... I guess a paid retweet is very similar to a sponsored tweet that shows on people's timelines, but it seems like uh, there's so many ways to monetize that system that are not advertising. It is funny, mm. too, that they're basically just using smaller advertisers with that reward system, right? Like, what the, what is the difference between displaying an ad on the website and having and paying for Penny Arcade to retweet your tweet? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it really just... is just more advertisers at a smaller level. or mm. And actually, it's, it's interesting because essentially their Twitter page just becomes their advertising stream. So yeah. they're saying we're going to move our ads from here to Twitter, I, I, which is I, I, funny. I, it's kind of funny, but but also like, hey, then you can just ignore the Penny Arcade Twitter and enjoy your Penny Arcade. I, you know? I, I, I guess the hope is that um, people are going to like give them funny like normal tweets, not like blatant advertisements that they're going to retweet. But I, I think obviously people are paying five hundred dollars for it are going to want their you know thing their their other web comic or their you know, podcast or something to be, like, shilled on the Twitter feed. Not that I spent $500. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want a link to Matt.cc if I'm paying 500 bucks. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's interesting, too, to talk a little bit about Kickstarter's limitations of what products they accept because, you know, Dalton's project, he made a page on his website that looks very similar to a Kickstarter page, and it's the same sort of model where he's trying to hit a goal and no money is accepted until he hits that goal. But it's not a Kickstarter project, um, and one of the FAQs is why it's not a Kickstarter project, and he says very explicitly that they love Kickstarter, they wish it could be, but uh, Kickstarter does not allow these sort of projects. Um, I think it's actually something a lot of people don't realize about Kickstarter, is that they only very strictly fund creative projects, which, you know, th that's been interpreted very loosely. I think you could, I think you could argue pretty strongly that uh, Penny Arcade removing its advertisements is not strictly a creative thing. Penny Arcade obviously is, but paying to take the ads away is not funding a creative thing. So I think that there's a, it's interesting that there's that line in the sand. It, it basically just leaves the door open for somebody else to create the next Kickstarter that doesn't have that line in the sand, which is, I, I guess I can understand it as a basis. Like in order to start anything, you have to create some sort of boundaries to define what it is. But uh, it does, it doesn't seem reasonable to continue that for, for a project like app.net. It does seem perfect for Kickstarter and that fine line I'm not. I'm not really sure how that's benefiting the users. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the Kickstarter clones we've seen uh, have been just just that people trying to take the Kickstarter model and apply it to something other than creative project. I know we say Kickstarter for science things out there, where it's specifically for research projects which are not creative, and it's like pay money so we can go look at these bugs in this you know crazy place, or pay money so we can investigate the physical properties of this new material. It's interesting. I think that uh, that Dalton's model is. Especially compelling to me, mostly because of what I mentioned about the fact that he's going to have X number of dedicated users on day one. And I wonder if uh, some sort of Kickstarter-like thing specifically for like startups, like web products, web services, uh, could exist. It'd be, it'd be an alternative to taking like funding through an accelerator or through a VC. You're taking money mm -hmm. directly from your users, but on the grounds of an idea and a team as opposed to a like finished product. So we're taking two things from you know Web 2.0 of venture capital and crowdsourcing and just like smashing them together. It basically is venture capital through crowdsourcing, right? It's saying we're going to avoid the model of, of one guy paying a lot of money 
but we still need that money, so we're just going to have a lot of people pay a little bit of money to equal that same amount of money. Yeah, but 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 from those from big group people, you also get a bunch of people that are invested users in your thing whenever it it comes to exist, which I think is really a beautiful idea. Right. You know that reminds me a lot of when uh, Fab was coming out. Like it it was that same typical thing where it was the the beta invite or you know the secret invite to the secret thing that's invitation only. And everybody signed up, but then five minutes later, the entire, you know, like, internet base goes, what did we just sign up for? I was going to say, you know what's interesting? We're, we're blowing a lot of smoke up people's asses with the, um, the model of kickstarting something. But we, we also have talked on previous episodes how when you get so many people involved in something and everybody has to have their input in it, it's going to ultimately become a shitty product. And we're mm-hmm. not talking about the other side of it where, look... If you're going to go to a VC and he gives you all this money or he or she or the company or whatever it is, it's a small group of people so you can make a decision in like a meeting room, you know? But now that we have a model where it's backed by hundreds if not thousands of people, you, it's the same as like being um, a stockholder. And we all have probably seen how those things can go. Like if having that many opinions controlling a company does ultimately mean like, hey, you need to make a profit or you need to make this successful in the way that I view success. Yeah, so I, I do think that in a situation where these people are going to be users of the final product, you know, they're also invested. Their investment is not you have to make a profit. You have to you know turn around and sell this company to Google for some insane amount of money. Their investment is this thing has to be cool and great and what I want to use. Um, and I do think that you have to. There'd be a very. It could be a problem with people thinking they had too much ownership over what it became. Yeah. Uh, so if someone you know gave you their money and then sent you an email and was like. I don't like the fact that you're doing this. This is not what I pay my money for. You should change it. It has to be clear up front that you are giving your money to trust the people that have set out to build this thing to make the right decisions for you, not that you're giving this money so you can tell them what color to make the logo, you know? Right. And are we ignoring any projects that have failed because of that? Because people feel like they need, they have more ownership over something than they, they truly do. And they pull their money out of the project. Like, is that a, is that a possibility for some of these things that they're, they're going to go belly up because too many people were disappointed in the end result and they don't want to pay anymore. This is a really good question. I, I I really want this thing with uh, this app.net thing to succeed just to see where this crazy experiment goes. Because I think it would be really interesting to see out of the 10,000 plus people that gave 50 bucks, you know, early on, how many of them the second year are going to come back and still give that money to still be part of whatever it is that happened. And, and I, I would love to see how the, all the economics and communication of that sort of system plays out. It's a really interesting experiment. Is it something, Andy, that you're thinking about as a model for something you want to do in the future? I just hear it like starting to come up as you talk about it. It's, it's something I thought about a lot on a couple levels. Um, and one of the levels is that... Uh, I've always wanted to design a better uh, music player that uses like a Spotify or RDO APIs. And if you use an API like that, you cannot sell the product. So I thought for a while it'd be interesting to try and like kickstart an app in the sense that, you know, we can't sell this thing, but if you give us enough money to compensate us for our time, we'll make this free app for you and it'll be great. Which was something I thought about a, a while ago. And then now I'm also thinking about the, the potential of building a system, like building the Kickstarter clone that is specifically tailored to software and, and web startups. And I think, it, I think it was an interesting opportunity there. I don't know that I'm, that our team is the person to, to do it, but I think it was a really interesting, like the sense that a supporter on Kickstarter for a physical product, like one of these Kickstarter projects is basically money and, and not much else. But if you're taking advantage of the fact that that's a person that's also invested in your idea, then you can take, make, you can make, you can take better advantage of them in a situation where you're building a, a web product 
uh, than you can with a physical product. So I think there's, a, there's an opportunity there, yeah. And I, I also like the idea that it could it, it can lead to like potentially true democracy on the web. There's been there have been so many efforts get you know get people to vote online, get people to create petitions online, whatever. But I do I, it's it's the combination of that and realizing that um, you know where you put your dollar is part of your vote. Yeah, I, I really like capitalism. the idea. It's a very like it's a very big and open idea to try to to turn that into something of a reality. But I really like the idea that those two things could come together to create a more true democracy than we even see in our own government, which is you know obviously flawed, but maybe one of the obviously one of the better examples in history of democracy at work. I would love mm-hmm. to see somebody build something that uh, basically allowed you to be transparent about how and where you spent your money, and have that be like a representation of you in the same way that like your Facebook page is a representation of you, but it's instead the things you choose to give your money to and and why. I think it'd be a really interesting way to sort of like uncover that. To, to make public that truth that where you give your money, giving money to something is supporting it. Buying a product is supporting the company that makes it. Right. I was actually, I was mm-hmm. talking to a friend about this yesterday about the idea is if, if somebody could create an open economy that has no middleman and it essentially captures the idea of an attention economy. But can you imagine like this, if, if you know, essentially a universal currency, a way that you know you can you can easily spend it on things that you would otherwise just be giving your attention to, and there are no banks in between you and here to gather interest to artificially jack up prices. Mm-hmm. It's something that could be uh, hypothetically so easily supported by the internet that obviously seems miles away. And like you know, I'm sure there are a lot of bankers that would want to murder the person who tries to come up with this. But <laughs> sorry, I just finished watching a season of The Killing, so I oh. uh, I expect everybody anytime you interfere with anybody's <laughs> money, you're going to get murdered. <laughs> but I, I love the idea of it, and I, it seems so inevitable in the future if we can get away from these walled gardens and these closed networks. This has been On The Grid, Episode 3. You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a phone call and leave us a message that we can potentially play on the show at 973 973- on grid two which is 973-664-7432 feel free to leave feedback links or topic suggestions on twitter hashtag on the grid and don't forget to leave itunes comments thanks to girlfriends for the music until next week <laughs>